Welcome to the Athlete Performance Education Podcast, where we aim to educate, empower, and excel athletes and coaches to the next level of performance. Welcome back to another episode of the APE Show. I'm really excited today to be joined by our first international guest from uh, China, Loris Bertolacci. He is a founding figure for strength and conditioning in Australia. Um, he's got an incredible resume that includes working with a range of AFL clubs. Um, correct me if I've missed anything, but I think there's Geelong, Collingwood, um, Western Bulldogs for a period of time, um, Essendon as well, uh, consulted for the Australian women's volleyball team, has been a practicing sports scientist, exercise physiologist, and strength and conditioning coach for the best part of three decades. Uh, welcome, Loris, and, and, and thanks for your time today. Have I missed anything in that intro? Oh, no, no, no. It's, uh, it, it's, it's probably four decades, so there's probably <laughs> heaps of stuff there. But, uh, yeah, that's fantastic. Thanks a lot. No, awesome, mate. Um, and I'm sure we'll go through some of those experiences uh, today. But first, I just wanted to pick your brain on your current situation. You're working in China. Um, where are you, essentially, and, and, and what's your current role consist of? Uh, well, I'm working with the Shanghai Institute of Sport. Uh, the current role has evolved a little bit or changed over the two years I've been here. I'm with the uh, track endurance cycling team, specifically the four-kilometre team pursuit team. Uh, so I've been with them now for a better part of a year. I started with handball, baseball and softball, but six months in, I was transferred to cycling. Um, yeah, so we, we, we're never at a specific location. We travel around. Um, so we either go to altitude training or, you know, some road training or velodrome training. So we're in Kunming, which is near Laos, uh, down the south right now for another two weeks. It's a 2,000 metre altitude camp in, 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 in China. And we're doing some training here. Uh, so, yeah, so, so that's been uh, yeah, my first foray into uh, cycling in terms of actually as a job. I helped cyclists before individually and uh that's been quite quite a massive learning curve for me in the past year massive huge you know which has yeah, been good yeah. awesome i remember you putting a post up recently talking about your work with speed and explosive sports and then also endurance sports such as afl and stuff and you kind of commented on that the event you're competing on the moment is probably the perfect blend of that do you think your your experience across both ends of the spectrum has allowed you to kind of develop uh, understand what what's sort of required for that in between space uh, yeah, good question. Uh, look, I think I think that's the biggest problem that's occurring a lot now, you know, in Twitter land and, and uh, you know, with all the the speed freaks. And, I mean, I was an ex-hammer throwing sprint coach, so it's not as if I wasn't a speed freak. But but understanding, you know, the hybrid nature of sports and how to, how to, how to develop uh, both and how to prioritise things or... Or, or put or compartmentalize, you know, what, what you need to do. So um, it, it's it's very much that. It's just a hybrid sport where, um, especially the, the team pursuit, but most of the track endurance sports, as against the sprinting, which is quite different. Um, you know, they're, they're putting out huge watts, but they're doing you know three, four, five, eight minutes, whatever you know, depending on the event. So certainly in the team pursuit, that's four minutes or three minutes forty-four now of sustained you know, high level wattage. Uh, how you train for that and, <laughs> and, and how you um, <clears throat> mix up the training is uh, 
it's quite quite interesting. So so therefore, having having worked in footy and different team sports, you know, from volleyball through to AFL and soccer, um, you know, you've got different needs of um, repeating efforts or whatever in those sports, different aerobic qualities required. That, that certainly made me scratch my head a little bit once I got into team pursuit and understand the sport a bit more. Yeah, so pretty fascinating. I think the other thing, just very quickly, with team pursuit cycling and track endurance cycling, as distinct from sprint cycling, as distinct from road cycling, my opinion is that it's probably one of the fastest evolving sports in the world in terms of improvement at this moment. Yeah, wow. Which is, uh, is that a reflection? Yeah, of, yeah. Um, what, the attention to training and the information we're finding out, or is it also a contribution to sports tech as well? Is that playing a role? Uh, the sports tech definitely that 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 makes a huge difference, and that 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 definitely because cycling, to a lesser extent, swimming or rowing, you know, you, you can measure things a lot more accurately than football, and and also what you measure means a lot more. Where in football, sometimes you know GPS data or fitness test <coughs> may not be relevant but here what you measure is going to actually be reflected in, 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 in uh, on the track on the boards or on the on the veldra um but but uh, look i just think people put their head together and um started thinking about the sport and uh the last 10 years has seen i, I think it's that 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 you know, the, the the use of sports science in the sport uh, has meant that people really thought about it and said, wow, what are we doing here? You know, we, we think this is an endurance sport. It's not an endurance sport. Um, it, it's, it's a hybrid sport. You know? So how do we train for that? What do we do? How do we change? And then, you know, the record, you know, it was always, it was good to be able to get under four minutes for a team pursuit team, literally 10 years ago. And now, you know, you're, you're verging on a, a second-rate state team, if you do that, yeah. Yeah, oh, that's a it's great changed. indicator for, I guess, the, <laughs> the progression of the sport. Um, touching again on, on mm. the Chinese experience, what are sort of some of the similarities and differences in the coaching over there? Um, not necessarily just with, with the cycling, but probably just the general coaching culture. Um, are there many similarities? And, and I probably expect there's probably more um, differences in terms of how they go about it or how the system works. Look, this, when you scratch the surface as far as the athletes are concerned, they're just young people. And um, oh, in terms of coaching people, I, I personally don't find any difference at all. You know, because, you know, if you coach in Australia in a range from, say, 12 years of age to 35 years of age, you know, you've got your in, you've got highly intense, motivated, Angle type athlete, you've got somebody who's not motivated and goes out to nightclubs every Saturday night. You've got somebody, you've got parents involved, you know, crazy parents involved in, in terms of pushing their kids or whatever. So I, I think the athletes and, 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 and obviously the young people in China, you know, with, with the evolution of their, their internet and they're, they're pretty, they're very similar, really, you know, their motivations and uh, what what is different, obviously, and it's well documented, is the culture of volume here uh, in training. You know, so uh, and I think there's two reasons for it. A, obviously, a lot of the Chinese coaches, uh, you know, are addicted to volume, uh, but also 
you know, every anybody who's an athlete in any of the provinces and or national teams are full-time. So they're all full-time. So they're basically there all the time. You know, they're, 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 they're either 24-7 or 23-6 in the program, you know, 364 days of the year. So you've got to fill in the time. You know, you've got to fill in the time somehow. <laughs> you've got to do something. Um, so just the nature of the way they've organised sport lends itself to volume. Um, but, 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 but obviously, you know, you've got 1.4 billion people in China. You've got a huge amount of people full-time. So even if their training is volume-based, at the end, probably not quite the right training sometimes. Um, at the end of it, the good ones will sneak through and then get into a national team. And then if the coaches are any good there, they still do quite well. You know? So, so it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a, a, bit of a, a um, jungle of survival here for the athletes. You know, they've got to survive the system and then some sneak through. But uh, yeah, look, it's, 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 it's probably the culture of volume um, and uh, obviously there's, there's quite a bit of interplay between a lot of foreign coaches that are here in different sports and the Chinese coaches. And I think what I'm seeing is that it's definitely going to be that the young coaches are going to be the key in China. I think there will be an explosion of performance here in 10, 20, 30 years because a lot of the young athletes and coaches are quite... Uh, uh, knowledgeable about what's going on and or interested, you know, as against the older ones here, you know, like 50, 60 years of age, they're, they're a little bit set in their ways from the past. So, so, so that, that's the difference, probably the culture of volume. Yeah. 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 Fascinating. And it does, it's a good point you make from what we see on, or at least in Australia on social media and stuff, there seems to be an increased prevalence of international coaches, whether it's, you know, America or Australia, where you are getting a lot of, degree based and people with, you know, backgrounds in level two strength and conditioning and NSCA qualifications and stuff sort of having their imprint on the um, program over there. What is the process involved in terms of getting a job over there? Is there, um, how did you sort of go about it and how did, how did that come about? Oh, look, to be honest, um, uh, I'd known uh, a chap called Brenton Parsons for a long time through AFL. Uh, not well, but I knew him through somebody who worked for me who then worked for him uh, or worked with, with Brenton. Um, so, so this is quite honestly how it happened. You know, I think in Singapore, I went to a conference when I was living in, working in Darwin. Um, I met Brenton again, you know, we, we connected uh, and then a job uh, arose and I applied and Breton was the is is the head of strength and conditioning for Shanghai Institute of Sport. Um, so um, so he invited me to a, 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 a trial here. <clears throat> so I thought, well, why not? Why not do something different? You know, in my life. So so for me, I, I think it's a little bit different with me because yeah, you know, I'm relatively well known. I've got some connections, and that just evolved. That was just sort of a. a uh, you know, if it wasn't for Britain, I probably wouldn't have got the job, to be honest. Um, but he also was looking for, at the time, myself and Greg Bob got two jobs. So we're both pretty experienced. So I think he, he he's pretty, I mean, you could ask Britain, but I think he, he was looking for some hard-nosed people um, to, to come into these particular jobs or openings he had, you know. Uh, so I think sometimes some of the jobs in the Olympic committees are very suited to young people. S&C people, the way they're structured. 
Um, but I think Brenton, for this Shanghai jobs, wanted some people with experience and who could ride the bumps a little bit at first. So I probably got the job as much for my experience and or his perception that, you know, that Greg and I would um, survive the jungle in the first six months or year, you know, because it, it is different. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. I think it can you you sort of you live on campus or on training deck with the squads and stuff and it seems like you sort of all have your meal times and you're in and out of hotels and you're probably spending most of the time living out of backpacks. So it probably isn't your most conventional coaching job. It probably has its sort of um, benefits and its um, challenges at, at at the same time. Oh, for sure. Look, obviously COVID's, you know, thrown up a whole set of challenges. <clears throat> and for me, it was great because it was a change. Obviously, my kids are grown up, so I didn't have to worry about that. And then um, when, before pre-COVID last year or 2019, um, when I first got here, you know, I was sort of going to come home for holidays. I was going to meet my wife in Asia and have holidays. And we did, you know, it was the whole, the whole thing was structured. So, so now it's a, different, it's a different set of circumstances because of coronavirus. So... I've had to sort of re, um, recalibrate what I'm here for. Um, and, and, and obviously the situation in Australia has made it easier to stay here in terms of employment. But um, yeah, uh, look, the, the life you lead, look, you're very well looked after. I think most of the SNC guys would say that. Uh, you know, you usually have a pretty nice room, which you can see I've got a really nice um uh, room in, in the Institute. Uh, they're, they're certainly, if I compared them to the Institute of Sport rooms, you know, they're, they're five-star versus two-star, the rooms most of the time. <laughs> the food's a challenge at times, right? you know, but you sort of work it out and then you can get stuff online and there are shops and, and they're, they're, if you, when you can get out of the Institutes, there's a plethora of uh, Maccas and Subways and <laughs> that's awesome that's really good insight yeah. i just wanted to to shift the conversation a little bit more towards your um your time in afl i'm a bit of a footy head so i'm really interested to pick your brains on a couple of things from from sort of my following and, and my development as a coach when we sort of look back at you know how did snc evolve in in footy your name seems to pop up quite a bit in terms of um its influence across the transition from vfl to afl and it moving from part-time to full-time roles within the industry. Um, how did it sort of start for you? How did you sort of land your first involvement with a footy club? Um, and, and how did you go about sort of getting involved in the program? Uh, look, I think uh, it's a good question. And, and, and for me specifically, although I think it's actually pretty relevant, I actually never forget in, I, I, I'd floundered a lot. I'd, I'd messed up my athletics career and messed up my academic career in the late 80s. <laughs> And I was working as a gym manager and then I just sort of said to myself, what am I going to do in the future? And uh, for some reason, I don't know why, I just said I'm going to work in AFL or VFL fitness at the time. I just sort of made a conscious decision that that's where I'm going to go. I felt like, and I'm not sure why I thought that. But um, I went for a job with Kobe uh, Football Club with Phil Cleary, who's a pretty famous name, and I got the job. And um, <laughs> even before we started pre-season, uh, the cleaner at the gym, a guy called Donnie, <laughs> told me there was a job at Essendon in SNC. 
So if it hadn't been for the cleaner at Fort the Leisure Centre telling me there was a job, I wouldn't have got an AFL. So I rang Essendon and uh, got interviewed by Shoes and Peter Shockman and a few others. And within that period that I hadn't even started Coburg, um, I got the job at Essendon in, in 87. So, so I, I suppose the moral of that story was I, I had made a conscious decision to go down a path, which I think is really important. You know, I've made a decision. Uh, and I was 32 then. I was 32. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just got into, I just walked into, Freddie Lehman had been there, who was quite a famous figure and ex-sprinter. I walked into the program at Essendon in the, the start of the AFL, the start of the AFL in 87. <clears throat> and there, I, know I had that role for six years um, until we won a premiership. Yeah. Uh, oh, look, massive learning curve. I, 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 I'd been overseas with track and field in the late 70s. As a competitor? I studied science. Yeah, as a competitor. Uh, I'd been to the AIS in the first year, a complete failure. It was, a, it was the worst thing I ever did, but it was a good learning curve. So I'd been overseas for a good part of a year training in the elite systems with the Russians and the East Germans and the Italians. Um, and then <clears throat> before AFL, I then... Retired from um, I retired from uh, uh, from athletics and uh, got married and I was a sprint coach sprint was 100 meter 200 meter sprint coach just at my local club but I had some really good athletes and then finished up working in AFL so there was a fair background before that you know science plus having seen elite sport overseas plus having worked with sub 11 sprinters you know in the in the early 80s and jumpers and stuff like that um and then walked into afl and had all these ideas you know about leg weight supply metrics and blah 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 blah. it sort of backfired at first because it was it was pretty tough to implement but um yeah i look thanks to a guy called david Weeden who turned up at geelong in uh, at essendon in 91 or 92 91 um we he he helped push you know, a, a holistic strength and conditioning program. Um, a friend of mine, I got in, Oscar Kendra had been a decathlete in the States. I got him in as a sprints coach. Danny Corkum was there. And we, we probably had one of the first proper programs in the AFL ever, I think, in 91, 92, 93, where we were doing a lot of sprinting, a lot of plyos, you know, a lot of Olympic lifting. And, you know, we were all athletics-based. We were all thinking a little bit outside the square. And I think ourselves and West Coast were probably the two. Unfortunately, Matt Barber just died recently, you know. But but he was at West Coast in that same period. I think those two clubs were, were fairly pioneering in the way they trained and, and introduced a lot of different stuff. Yeah, yeah. So it was pretty hardcore. You know, I was – we were um, – I was pumping them with Olympic weights, especially 91, 92, 93. Not so much 87, 88, 89, 90, but more so afterwards. And lots of plyos, uh, lots of sprints, you know, all this stuff about this newfound sprinting. Everybody's, you know, it's 2021. Some of you know, young Twitter people have discovered sprinting. I mean, like, seriously. Um, you know, we were, we were getting them out in the blocks and we were sprinting them flat out. Um, Multiple bounding, multiple stair jumps, multiple hops, multiple Olympic lifts, you know. Uh, I had glued hams already in 91, uh, you know, glued ham raises from um, 
Russian sort of knowledge. Um, so we were doing glue hams and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, yeah, but um, but that, that that was that that period there. So that's how all that happened with the AFL, and, and obviously it was generally a one man band or two man band at the most, and not much money. But um, but 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 I think there was you know it, I suppose there was a big evolution from '93 through to '90s for me where. Um, I, I had to scratch my head and say, well, if you smash the guys with power, it works. Now, if you squat them big, if you sprint them hard, if you jump them big, you go hard, you know, go hard or go home, um, they get more powerful and very powerful teams, 93, 95, 96, you know, Essendon and even Collingwood, I think Collingwood. But a little bit too much injury. You know, I was seeing a little bit too much injury. So then I sort of became a little bit focused on injury prevention in say, 97, 98, looked at the whole Pilates area, core stability, Paul Czech, you know, uh, Dance Australia, tried to sort of see where, you know, where, why, why do injuries occur? Why do people get osteoarthritis and why, blah, 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 blah. And um, yeah, by, by, by 2000, I'd recalibrated and I realised that you basically just have to use it all for AFL. It's an, you have to individualise the sport. So by, by, I, I sort of went from being a, a, a crazy power nut in the you know early 90s to a little bit too injury prevention pro focused. I reckon about about 97, 98, 99 to uh, you know oh my god this is pretty obvious just use it all. So if a person's got some issues, you know they've got to get that right. Uh, they've got to be screened. They've got to work out their deficiencies and, and, and get that right. Um, if somebody's really weak and we need to smash them, well, we need to smash them. You know, we do sprints, we need to do Pilates, we need to do everything, you know, but in the right context. So so the whole concept of totally individualising a program became the mantra from 2000 onwards, really, you know. Um, yeah, so, so I sort of laugh a little bit when you listen to even now still people talk about a program at a club. They, there should not be a program, you know. There is no such thing as a program. You know, you have 40 guys in there of different ethnicities, body types, training ages, needs, and that even changes every year. So it's just an individualised approach to what they do. And the, 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 yeah, you bring them together on the track and the skills. So, so that, that, that's a snapshot of the history of, of uh, AFL for me. <laughs> Mate, that's, um, that's absolutely brilliant. That's absolute gold because I think, um, especially from my experience, I've sort of been involved in, in study and, and um, internships and that sort of stuff since 2012. And a lot of what you said you discovered in the late 80s, early 90s, if you, if you explain that to someone on day one, it saves them 10 years of mistakes. And I think that's some brilliant lessons in there in terms of how you've moved and shifted from your experiences with your power training and stuff to understanding the injury rehabilitation and the blending of the training. And then... What you've summarised there is it's um, sort of reflects our principles with, with our company, APE, about individualisation with training that you'd have to identify what does the individual need and then dose them with that. If, if extra power work's going to break them, then extra power work's probably not the solution and it's probably more of that, that rehab stuff or if they need more conditioning, you know, it's finding that blend of what they need. And I couldn't agree more with what you say um, with all of a sudden that running mechanics is something that we've, we've just discovered. Um, I always look at the game of football is that running has always been there. Um, I think probably it's a little bit of a case of maybe people weren't um, giving it any work 
And now that they've realized that they're getting a return on investment from putting it, putting some um, structured stuff in their programs, but by all means, it's, it's really refreshing to hear that, you know, sort of it's been done and the, the basics don't change. And I'm also really fascinated by your exposure and experience with the, with the East Germans and, and the Russians. Did that sort of underpin and does that still underpin a lot of your, your training principles um, that you use today? Uh, look, I, I wouldn't say it underpins. Uh, there was a bit of dodgy stuff going off in, uh, uh, <laughs> in Europe in the late 70s. Uh, it was more the raw materials. I mean, I, I, I went to train in Italy in 1978 and I landed in a place called Tirania, which is like a training camp or oh, a couple of places. And, and, and um, <clears throat> I suppose historically, I, I actually remember being on an athletics track and, and, and I had Peter Sheeney, Natalie Bondichuk, some other dude who was really famous. You know, um, plus the Italian coaches, they're actually sitting in a police track having a smoke and talking periodization. Um, you know, we're talking about the founding fathers of periodization and planning, and I was actually sitting there, you know, and then because <clears throat> a lot of those um, Eastern European countries used to travel to Europe and uh, to Italy, and they liked it, you know, so they used to go there a lot. So, so I actually listened and, and learned off people that are considered the, um, the pioneers of the, the, that era. Yeah, and, and look, when I got to Italy in 78 and all Europe, um, yeah, we were jumping hurdles and doing multiple hops and throwing shot puts overhead and doing rotational work and, you know, looking at periodization models and, you know, unloading and, and all that stuff had was sort of had already been, the surface had been scratched, you know, people... Were performing at a very high level at that period, so so yeah, the, 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 the basics of what I saw there, and then obviously after that, uh, I came back to Australia, and I remember going to Olympic Park and training a lot as a hammer thrower, and I'd be jumping hurdles and doing plyos, and people looking at me going, you know, what the hell is this guy doing? You know, but um, yeah, for sure that that was critical, but but I certainly had to pin what I said before that um, in terms of you know fully becoming an athlete, uh, uh, what I've learned in, um, in terms of the fine tuning and <clears throat> the needs of young kids and development and, 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 you know, going from somebody that's got a problem to trying to eradicate that problem, um, that, that's been really important too. So, I, 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 yeah, I don't... I don't um, Obviously, the basics are there. Yeah, we were doing glute hams. I, I remember doing single single leg glute hams in 1978, not double leg glute hams, single leg. Yeah, I remember, I remember not walking for three days. I was that sore. But <clears throat> so, yeah, it was a fascinating period. I was lucky to be um, exposed to it. You know, I, I think it was more how training was classified. And I think I'll go back to the fact that... Um, we're learning a lot all the time now, but a lot, 80% of it was evolved in the 60s and 70s. There was a big explosion of knowledge there. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, yeah that's brilliant. That's one of the um, questions I was interested about in terms of, we live in the information age now where everything's accessible over the internet and we see different interpretations of the original basics that I guess were first recorded from, from the Eastern Europeans and, and the Russians and whatnot. Um, 
So you sort of, that's where you sort of found out about that stuff from your training experience in the seventies and eighties without the use of the internet and stuff at its powers. That's where you sort of, you came across about it um, in your experience. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I was in in, uh, half a dozen training centers over a year in Europe and uh, you know, half the guys were juiced up, unfortunately, uh, but, but they were training their butt off and, some of the most amazing coaches that are quoted now you know, in the history books and the technical books you know, by the shark and these people. So, uh, for sure, yeah. And, 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 and all the isometric hip exercises, uh, eccentric, uh, eccentric uh, you know, hamstring exercises, lower back machines to work, uh, rest spineys and, and um, things like doing weights on the morning or the day before and uh, contrast training and all those things. Well, that was just, those boxes were all ticked. That was all, it's all quite boring now, you know, depth jumping, altitude jumping, blah, 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 all, all done. You know, that was all, uh, I trained with the Italian ski team. I remember for a period of time and you know, watched them doing stuff and plyos at that time. So, so yeah, I, I think that's, um, that, 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 that's it, it seems like yesterday, but yeah, that was that was pretty good training. And obviously, a lot of the world records, whether they were drugs or not, still stand from then. Well, not a lot, but some, you know, we yeah, sort no, of proves that right, the training methods went like that, you know, from 60 to 78 to 1980, and then they sort of leveled off a little bit, and there's been a difficulty. Um, but uh, but 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 having said that, then what the, the, the beauty of now is we have the knowledge to individualize programs a lot better. That's, that's the benefit of 2021. We can individualize, we, 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 do, we do have a lot more knowledge. I have a lot more knowledge about how to tease out uh, what somebody needs individually, but then funnel that back into the basics because at the end of the day, you still want that person to be able to exert force or you know, do something, yeah, yeah. That's brilliant. It sounds like the um, the dream internship. I think for anyone who's just discovering, you know, whether a young coach or something, you know, the, the work of Verkachinsky and, and Bondashuk through um, some of the translated texts and stuff. It sounds like you got to have the firsthand practical experience um, back in the day. So so that's amazing. And I love your wisdom there. We talk about how, you know, that's that's part of it. But now we have the power to individualize. We have the resources. I'm sure. Um, you know, it's easy to coach on a more individual level to maximise the results of each individual. So that's um, that's an incredible insight. I'm interested to know on that when you were bringing that stuff into the to the AFL early days, was it knocked back a little bit, or were you sort of given free reign in terms of I, I can't imagine many other um, SNC coaches at the time, albeit not many, um, would have had the experience you had. Did you have issues communicating your philosophy and message to both the athletes and the program at the time, or was it pretty well received? <clears throat> uh, no, it was difficult. It was difficult. I think there was some sides of it made it easy in that, um, especially, especially in 94, 95, 96, 97, probably. Uh, I was verging on a one-man band with a part-timer. <laughs> so I was almost the you know i was the sports scientist the strategic guy the administration manager uh the, you know i'd bring in you'd bring in a part-time speed coach you'd, you'd still have some part-time if you 
but you 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 know you had your lactate analyzer. You'd go out in the ground. You're the fitness guy, but you were doing all the sports science data. You, know, you were getting heart rate monitors. I, I think it was a probably, to answer your question, probably 50%. There, there was at the time, for instance, people like Mark Williams, who, who came to Essendon in 96 um, or 97, you know, he had a really good background. So, you know, when we did all the heart rate monitoring and, and the testing, you know, he'd help me and he'd be the link between me and Sheeds, you know. So there, there was always people, as I mentioned before, David Whedon was a, a pioneer in, 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 in skills um and tactics, you know, and he wrote a number of books and he was quite an amazing guy, still around now. Uh, he was pivotal in the early 90s uh, because um, he, uh, you know, he, he, he basically fostered doing things a little bit better. <clears throat> Danny Corcoran had had an athletics background <clears throat> and was at Essendon. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you still you still had board members who were, were resistant to, you know, what you were saying and what we did in the old days and and, and training and, 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 and certainly it took time. I, I, I think that, you know, to answer your question, I, I, I felt that we were lagging a lot. And in late 97, I went to the AIS and uh, I organized the camp for all the coaches and the admin staff. And Peter Jackson, who was then the CEO of Essendon, <coughs> he liked the idea. And um, so, the football department, the medical department, and part of the um, uh, management. We went for a week to the AIS at the end of 97, which had been a, the first unsuccessful year for years. And we had a study tour of the AIS when it was booming, you know, the, the AIS. And we went to the physiologists, you know, the netball teams, the athletic teams. We, 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 we had a look at everything. Every, everybody then collaborated together. And then we came back to Essendon in 97 and we went full-time on the back of what we'd seen at the AIS and how things were going there. Um, I, I think that, you know, that that approach was the best. Sheeds wasn't that keen on it at first. You know, he didn't really want to go, but Peter Jackson was uh, thought it was a great idea and, and everybody got an insight. And, and then late 97, we created a full-time environment at Essendon, which was probably the first real full-time pro environment, you know, <clears throat> multiple masseurs, head masseur, full-time physios, full-time program, uh, you know, fine tuning, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So, so it was tough. And then I look, when, to give you a story, I read Foster's research in 99 um, with RPEs. So I read the original research with RPEs. Um, within a year, I was trying to get RPEs off the ground at Geelong you know, in 2000. <laughs> so it's pretty funny when you hear about it now. And um, But there was a resistance from the coaches because they thought it was a bit soft-ass players, you know, how hard training is. So I did it on the slide. You know, there were things I did on the, on, on the quiet for about a year or two. And myself and Jared Egan gathered data on, on the quiet <laughs> with RPEs uh, because... Uh, and it was only when GPS came in in 2002, the one hertz GPS, is that we put RPEs and GPS together and then the coaches were more comfortable with the RPEs because they didn't mind the GPS, you know, because you couldn't argue with the GPS, but you could argue with the RPEs. That's, that's the way it went. It's just an evolution, yeah. It's, it's fascinating to hear your, um, 
the, the sort of the dates that you were using this stuff. And I remember we were first studying um, RPE in 2013 at, at university and, and Rob Orgy at the time was really pushing the research at VU and stuff to, to kind of really validate it. So it's fascinating to hear how early you're onto this stuff. And even when you mentioned, you know, the Soviet stuff and the East German stuff earlier, like the fact that you were applying that in the nineties and it's, um, I think it's going to be refreshing for a lot of people to hear just some of the wisdom that, that, that you have and that you're sharing. So I really appreciate that. A couple of general questions, um, I guess, in terms of where we sit now in SNC and just your thoughts and I'm mindful of time. So if we need to wrap things up, just let me know. Um, with, um, I guess with SNC and we talk about sort of how running has encroached and we find that different topics trend at different times and then it kind of feels like, well, from my perspective, we almost forget about another training method as we squeeze something in. Do you sort of have a bit of an opinion in terms of maybe what we, we focus too much on or, or perhaps things we don't spend enough energy on in terms of how you perceive S and C currently? Uh, look, the first thing is that if you're working strength and conditioning for a sport, and, and I'll preface this a little bit, if, you, if you're helping a young kid like 11, 13, 14, 15 with S and C, I think you just take a really general approach, you know, in terms of S and C. And, and that should not be sport specific. So, so I'm a great believer is that, you know, when you've got kids, I'm going to say 12 approximately, which is when, you know, parents are starting to get their kids into these performance centers now, to say 16, you, you try and teach them a, a, a complete array of skills, you know, call it physical literacy, call it how to jump, Anything, side lunge, arabesque, arabesque twist, you know, whatever, right? Okay, so we just put that aside a little bit. But once you get into the nitty gritty and you've got an adult, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, and they're playing a sport and they've decided to play a sport, you know. So we're, we're doing S&C for a sport, okay? We're not personal trainers. We're, we're actually training people for a sport. What we forget is the sport. We actually put S and C ahead of the sport. So I often challenge people and say, do you realize that, to be honest, if somebody never did S and C, just played, just did swimming, a bit of gymnastics, played a bit of footy and hockey and never did S and C, they'd probably play some pretty good footy. Oh, I go, yeah. I said, nothing, no Nordics, no squats. No, nothing. They'd probably still play some good footy. And people go, well, but, 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 sorry, I've, I've seen it. I saw it time and time ago. I saw, I saw guys come out of HSC when I was in my athletics club and they'd play hockey and footy and then they'd get on the blocks hand time and they'd run 10-6, 10-7 because they were talented. And that isn't see. They still run 10-7, 10-8. So it's very tough for people to understand that. And because I went through it in the 80s in footy, you know, you know, half the guys have done S&C and half the guys have never touched the barbell and they still play some pretty good footy. So that's not demeaning beneath s and So you need to understand that you're training something for a sport. So the sport comes first. So what, what do they need for the sport? How much time have you got to train? When are you going to fit in the S&C? How are you going to slot it in? How are you going to change it relative to when you're doing pre-season, in-season and that? And, and if, you, if you start from that angle, then you'll, you'll start realising that you need to, you know, 
reduce the number of exercises. You need to sometimes say, well, maybe you only need to do one session a week of SNC, maybe two now or maybe three now, you know. Um, so it's just that underlying philosophy where I think what happens because of the plethora of information now, it's all like, well, we just got to do S&C and we've got to just throw in everything into this program, you know, and it just becomes a bit of a mess, you know. Um, so there's nothing wrong with what's going on with the knowledge revolution, but it's, 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 it's understanding that you're training for the sport and therefore how do you actually, what do you need? What do we need to do in SNC or sprinting or what do we need to do for that athlete to help that sport and when and then how much? Um, and that that's, you know, putting... Well, I think, you know, the, the focus of Instagram and, 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 and Twitter and, 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 and obviously all the, you know, graduate degrees and, and master's programs, it's, you know, you're coming out as an SNC person. So it's almost like, hang on, we just, all we're doing is training for the sport. Yeah, That's no, it. That, it, it's, it's brilliant. It's such a good summary. <laughs> Nobody's going to ask you whether you've done a Bulgarian split squat or a reverse lunge or, a, you know, uh, when you go and play the sport. Nobody, nobody gives a brass to zoo what you've done when the siren goes. It's game on, you know. So for what are we doing? Okay, so what do we need? Yeah, that's that's the focus. That's the focus, and that's a fundamental problem right now. Yeah, I think I find from from what I see is especially people who are coming through university and then looking for jobs and stuff. We obviously want to go where the jobs are, and that's usually in the bigger sports, the AFL, um, NBL is picking up over here, and uh, rugby league, that sort of stuff. But it almost seems like a lot of these people haven't experienced it as an athlete and understand where SNC fits in terms of the the priority for the athlete. And I think you hit the nail on the head as a reminder that the sport doesn't matter how good they are in the gym or how good they are at box jumps or anything like that. They've got to be able to play their sport. They've got to be able to train to perform and, and practice those fundamental skills. It's a, it's a great message. Um, on that though, and a bit of a follow-up, we sort of understand, and I know you understand this better than most people that, you know, SNC obviously has a role. Where do you think for the athlete, SNC provides the most value? Um, whether it's a psychological thing or a physical thing, where, where do you think the value comes from completing SNC, complementing your sports training and sports playing? Oh, oh I mean, obviously, what, what, what I was probably heading to was that the pressure now is to write a program and try and fit in too many exercises. That that's yeah. that's probably the problem, right? Yeah, yeah. So you know. Somebody's, somebody's doing a hamstring prevention program and they've got leg flutters on a band followed by, you know, plyometric bridges. And you're just thinking, mate, can you just do a Swiss ball hammy curl and some Nordics and some back raises? And it'll probably get the person over the line and their hamstrings won't be any different. Their architecture won't be any different. <clears throat> so that, that's, that's what I was getting at before, right? Okay, so people go, I've got to do this, I've got to do that, I've got, I've got to add this exercise, I've got to do that. Just relax, you know, relax. It's not going to make much difference to the hamstring or the quad, right? <clears throat> uh, to answer your question, uh, the benefit, obviously, it's the difference, you know, strength and conditioning is, is, is the big difference for, for 99% of people. And, uh, and obviously, in the sport that I'm in, it's even more of a difference because the force put into the pedal is pretty obvious, you know. Um, 
yeah, it's 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 massive, you know, and and, and I think that um, certainly, you know, the, the 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 number of teams that I was involved with, um, you know, the the well, 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 we felt forget all sports I've done since. Uh, it was critical to go through all the phases and then get them to a certain point where they could exert force and and they had you know all the prerequisites down pat. And then once you get to a certain point, you know it gets to the law of diminishing returns. You know, so so therefore, if you know if a footballer can do five on one forty squats or you know can do single leg hops over cones, you might just think, well, if I do one spinny squats and you know, massive hops. It probably won't help their football that much. But you need to get to that stage because it, it it's a bit like the argument that, um, you know, when you've got juniors or young athletes, you know, any strength work will help them. It's the same with a lot of sports. It's, it's really critical. Yeah. And, uh, oh, look, it's, it's, it's obviously, having said that before, it's, it's the major difference now in performance. Yeah. S&C. So it's, 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 it's hard to navigate the two. Sort of, yeah. yeah. No, I think that's a, a what you said first at the start. There is, it's, it's in most cases, it's the difference. It's the difference between the guy who has done the extra work and the, or the woman that has done the extra work oh. and the one that hasn't. Um, awesome. Yeah. A couple of quick, quick fire questions to, to wrap things up, and um, I'll let you get back to to your day. Um, best athletes that you've worked with from a physical performance perspective. Uh, oh, well, look, um, probably I spent time at the AIS and, you know, my best man at my wedding was Ken Loraway. I didn't work with him, but, you know, he was a seven and a half metre triple jumper. So, um, unfortunately deceased now, but yeah, I saw people like him. Um, when I was at Advanced Athletes Performance, um, working before coming to China, uh, the guy who owns the place, Coach Joshua Ross, a sprinter, who was an untapped talent even in his 30s. You know, he's um, probably probably close to the best athlete, <coughs> probably close to the best athletes I've ever seen. Yeah, I nearly did a hundred centimetre vertical, um, and been a nine eight sprinter. So I, I saw him. I was involved a little bit with his training. That was pretty amazing, even when he ran ten flat. Um, in terms of AFL, yeah, there were some pretty amazing guys like Tom Harley, who's the CEO of Sydney. He was that sort of hybrid um, athlete who, you know, could do a 16 beep test, but run a 285, 20 metres and, you know, just built like steel, you know, pretty, pretty amazing athletes. So, so you, you've got, you know, you've got to, you don't just look at individual performance, you know, the person who can show 23 metres in the shop with it. That's why I bring Tommy Harley and going back to Gary O'Donnell from Essendon, who was a captain of Essendon. You know, he was that hybrid athlete who was was amazing, right? Could run a 4K, but could run a sprint, you know, could do a jump, could do five on 150 in the squad. So hard to sort of say, but um, yeah, because I was involved in track and field, obviously I was involved with a lot of very good athletes, you know. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's a snapshot. But yeah, so, so some of it's a little bit, I certainly, certainly respect the, um, the people that can do um, that hybrid thing too, you know, they can they can mix it up a little bit, which is which is obviously classically the AFL guy. Yeah. Yeah. But, awesome. Um, um, favorite favorite role you've had 
in strength and conditioning? Uh, to, to, to be honest, um, it was probably after AFL uh, and uh, I got into tennis a bit. I still help a few tennis players online. And uh, I didn't work with Tennis Australia. I worked with some you know, ATP, WTA players um, and yeah, had some really good experiences with them. So I don't know whether favourite's the word, but I found it the most interesting in that I really had to scratch my head, what do I do with a tennis player? You know, because that, that, that became the ultimate in... Uh, individualize a program, you know, working with a tennis player because it's just, just trying to work out what somebody needs. But but also getting involved with the sport and you know getting on the court and um, being involved and and learning about the circuit and the the whole the whole bits and pieces. So I had a lot of experience with tennis since since AFL since two thousand seven, and that's probably been. Um, Maybe not the most fright, uh, the favourite thing, but the most enlightening. <laughs> yeah, awesome. And you might not have an answer for this one. You might be, you know, focused on your, on your current role. But what, where to next in the future? Is it um, perhaps going back to? I know you did some teaching at BU, um, educating. Is it another a dream coaching role you'd like to move into next? What what sort of next on the uh, on the long list of achievements? I'll uh, stay alive. Um, it, it's. Uh, Look, I'm a bit fascinated by the four-kilometre team pursuit because it's so trainable. It's so trainable. You know, it's it's if you do this amount of work and this type of ergo work and this type of squat work, and uh, you get a better result because obviously uh, cycling and training is a lot more transferable than say a football where a bit more skill involved, you know. Uh, so I, I, I'm more than happy to stay involved in this sport and specifically this area because I've sort of spent a lot, uh, the last year learning a lot about the physiology of, of uh, endurance cycling, track endurance cycling. Um, but uh, I, I think the main thing I probably want to do is um, uh, when I get back to Australia is uh, just just assist individual athletes, I think. You know, I, I, it's, Australia's very ageist, so it's very difficult for me to get a job in Australia. You know, nobody will give me a job in in, in, in AFL or anything like that anymore. They'll just, that group, most of them just think, I don't know, just, you, just don't, you just can't get a job when you're my age in Australia. So that's 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 okay. <laughs> but, I, but I can get lots of work. I can get lots of work, you know. So I, I, I just think just, just working as a sports scientist and strength and conditioning person um, from kids right through to elite and just doing probably what you do, you know, just working um, with different athletes and, and uh, helping them as much as I can and just being a coach, really. That's, that's, that's what I want to do is I want to coach. I don't want to go to the library or attend the Rose Garden, you know, as I get older, yeah. <laughs> nah, that's um that's absolutely brilliant mate thank you so much for your time today uh i'm sure our listeners will get a lot out of it i'll be sharing it with with all the interns and all the up-and-coming coaches that we work with because there are so many nuggets of wisdom and um advice and 
it definitely helped with some of my biases and previous thought process. And I think that is probably more of an influence of being, of seeing your coaching and stuff online. So mate, thank you so much for your time. Um, all the best with, okay. with your upcoming competitions and, and, and coaching and um, look forward to following more of your work in the future.